0: This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 43, with your hosts, Ray Hurto of HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined via Skype by
1: Matt Paceni from MJP Property Group.
2: Matt, you're Skyping in because we're trying to uh respect social distancing. We're in the <laughs> Min-
3: minus the three of us. Yeah, we're
0: about four feet away, so we're a little too close. Let's get into that real quick, do a quick update. Yeah.
1: It's a bummer. I was planning to come there and be in person. I'm just not too far away in Brookline. But yeah, with all this uh, COVID-19 stuff going around, I guess we got to keep our distance.
2: Indeed. And you lost your childcare for the next couple of weeks too, right?
1: Yeah. Both of my kids are out of school. So yeah. Tag teaming with my wife who is a a champion.
3: How has this affected your business at all?
1: Right now, no, it hasn't. I mean, we've only had this sort of, I guess, national emergency or whatever since I guess that was declared on on Friday. And I feel like over the weekend is when they started clamping down. It seems like everyone I'm talking to now across the country, pretty much everywhere, it sounds like they're recommending the social distancing. Restaurants and bars, for the most part, from what I'm hearing, are are closed and things of that nature. Uh, But in terms of my properties and their operations, um, all of our staff, thank goodness, is is healthy. We've taken some some measures to uh, to try to ensure their health and their safety moving forward. You know, one of the things that we're doing is we're actually we've notified all of our tenants. Uh, so I do uh, just for the listeners, I, I, I uh, own and operate a lot of multifamily um, throughout the country, right? So
2: how many units do you guys have?
1: So I invest both passively and actively. So my entire portfolio uh, at the moment is uh, a little over 2,000 units, but 75% of that I'm a passive investor in or, or a limited partner. And then 25% of that is properties that I, either I uh, I own outright or that I uh, am the lead syndicator on. So that that's... Um, you know, the way that we go about getting these properties is we, we get a bunch of investors together to take down larger assets that none of us could could take down individually on our own. But if we pool our money and our resources together, we can take down 10, $20 million properties um, and all enjoy sort of the benefits of the, the economies of scale of having a large asset like that uh, without having to, you know, come up with 2 to $3 million on my own, right? Or, or, or any investor on their own, we, we pull the r- resources together. Then you know we can put a group of, you know, thirty to fifty people together, and then we can all have joint ownership in the property.
2: The thus syndication, right?
1: Thus syndication, yes, yes. The topic uh, and of the episode, there yes. There are some laws and regulations uh, around how one has to do that legally um, with the SEC. You, you, you know, you can't just say, "Oh, well, I'm just gonna." raise money from 40 people and just we all put our money in and we, we buy a property without going through the proper legal channels and r- reporting to the SEC, their blue sky laws and things like that. I, I have a an SEC attorney who I have hired who works on those types of things for me to make sure that it's all, you know, on the up and up because if, if you don't set it up properly, you can get in really big trouble.
0: So when you're doing these syndicate deals, Are you in charge or who's, how do you pick the leader when there's 30 or 40 people involved?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. So what I was saying was that like 25% of my portfolio, the ones that I don't own, I'm the lead syndicator, but usually there will be one or a couple of people who will work together and they'll be considered the sponsors of the deal or sometimes called a general partner. And they are the people who actually find the deal put it under contract, get everything sorted together. And then the investors come in as passive investors or as limited partners in the deal um, where they don't have uh, direct control necessarily over the deal, but they've invested their money in that deal. So that's primarily how it's set up. So 75% of the deals of those, I think it's like 2,200 doors at this point. I'm just a limited partner. I don't have any control in it. Although I am a partner in the deal and I get reports on a monthly basis. I'm looking at the financials and they all are performing pretty well at this point. So, you know, I also enjoy in the the income from those. Um, and then if we actually have a, a sale event, I'll, I'll get the profits there. And then there's also some tremendous tax benefits on the large multifamily properties where we're doing not just regular straight line depreciation, but we're able actually to do a bonus depreciation. And you know, I, I can get in a little more detail on that, but the, the bottom line is, that, you know, we had a deal that we closed in October of last year. If you put $100,000 in on that deal, your K-1 that I just sent out a couple of days ago would show a $90,000 loss on paper, uh, passive loss. Now, there's passive loss rules and things like that that we can also get into all the details on that, but. Suffice to say there are some pretty significant tax advantages that you can get through investing in a vehicle like this.
3: so where are your primarily where are you primarily investing in from a state you know are you do you have a particular state that your majority of your properties are in, or are you all over the place?
1: I'm a little bit all over the place. In terms of, you know, deals that I'm sponsoring, I've built a really great relationship with a number of the brokers in the Kansas City area, both the, you know, Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. And so that's where a lot of the deals that I've been doing lately have been, although I have property in Jacksonville, Florida, I've had a number of properties in the Atlanta area. Um, We just submitted an offer on something in Augusta, Georgia last week. Um, So, you know, I really like Georgia a lot. I
2: heard they have a good golf course.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, A ton of property in Texas, uh, some property in Arizona. Uh, I'm sure I'm probably forgetting a couple of things. I got something up in I got a small little thing up in New Hampshire. I've got a property in Brooklyn, New York. Nothing in Massachusetts yet, although I'm continuing to look around here. I'd love to find something that kind of, Meets the criteria I'm looking for in, in, the, uh, in the Massachusetts, uh, somewhere in the Commonwealth would be phenomenal. I'm just not finding anything at this point in the market cycle that, that meets the type of criteria I'm looking for as an investor.
3: And what is that criteria?
1: So I'm looking for really high cash flow. Um, and the reason why I'm looking for really high cash flow actually fits really well into the issue that we're experiencing right now with this COVID-19 outbreak. I haven't seen any issues and we'll see how long this continues for and we'll we'll see uh you know if there's any sort of um longer term blowback on this but you know right now we've got a good amount of cash flow on top of our income right and then our expenses and then we have profits which we distribute out to all the investors so what this might mean in this type of situation is we might not be able to send out distributions for a little while to our investors depending on how badly we get hit by this whole thing. A lot of people are, are going to be unemployed. I know the government has some sort of stimulus package that they're talking about announcing, I think, later today or tomorrow. So we'll see how much that helps. But if we can't go ahead and and uh, send out distributions, it's fine, because I think we will still be able to cover our debt service, right? And, and a lot of the things that I've seen in the Massachusetts area, and I, I've only lived here for getting close to three years now, okay? Um, and and we've been, you know, I think arguably at, at the top or, or close to the top of the market cycle during that time. All the properties I've seen, and and so I'm talking, I'm not talking about new construction and development because I think that's a sort of a different story, but the type of stuff that I do where we're buying an existing property and then going ahead and 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 making improvements to it, both operational improvements and also, Uh, you know, rehabbing, taking care of deferred maintenance, upgrading units, things of that nature. The properties that I've seen around here, it's like you can buy them and, you know, maybe you've got cash flow of, you know, maybe 1%, you know, but a lot of times it's just like, hey, the, the, the market's been great here. And appreciation wise, you know, as long as things continue to appreciate, you'll make a lot of money if you sell this property in the future. But, for me the kind of investor I am I'm not interested in that kind of speculation I do risky investments um I've invested in startups my wife is a theatrical producer we've invested in Broadway plays I can't think of anything more uh risky than that but we <laughs> he has
2: made money on that
1: we have actually we we lost money but we've we've been fortunate enough to invest in in some really fantastic shows that have kind of hit it out of the ballpark which has been
2: phenomenal i have a family friend who lost not every. i just know anecdotally he made like one big investment on a play and it showed one night the critics canned it and it never oh, man you know that was it
1: well that's what that's what you have to know if you're going to invest in that and, and i'm not saying we've never lost money we've lost money but if you invest in a show like a hamilton and then all of a sudden you've got these incredible returns they eliminate anything you've ever invested in before. So you, I feel like if people are interested in investing in something like that, I say, look, you got to look at it more of like a, a mutual fund or something like that, where you're going to invest not just in one show, but you're going to do it in a few different ones and make sure that you're investing alongside people that have a really good track record, understand the business and know what they're doing.
2: And then the coronavirus comes and it wipes out all your diversified portfolio of plays because broadway is shut down and i'm, I'm not saying right. i'm just teasing but right uh, it's it's a little scary
1: and that's why i wouldn't do it all in one season either you know i mean honestly uh we, with with our situation the shows that we're invested in things are, 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 are have stopped right now but we've had enough home runs where even if none of those shows reopen we're we are still ahead of the game at this point so but it's, no. it's very risky and that's not this is not the, the, we're talking about real estate, but, but, but just to give you an idea. So, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I'm not averse to risky investments, but I got to know that they're risky. And when it comes to real estate, where the vast majority of my portfolio is, I'm not looking necessarily for home runs. I'm looking for solid base hits. I'm looking to invest in a real asset, not just paper, not just a, a number on, you know, a stock ticker, but an actual brick and mortar facility where people have to live right people are going to are going to live there no matter what happens to the economy of the dollar or whatever people are going to need to pay rent whether they're paying in dollars or uh, in in you know yen if 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 we were to be taken over by another government or if Bitcoin. we got to to a barter system people will be giving you you know chickens or whatever there <laughs> it's an actual it's an actual real asset right and so that's what i like to invest in for my bread and butter. And then I'll I'll do some speculative investments here and there. I think that they're fun and interesting and can be lucrative, but they have a much higher risk. So I'm looking for things extremely low risk. So most of the investments that I do from a multifamily perspective, we're looking at double digit cash on cash returns. So what that allows is if there's a downturn in the economy, maybe we're getting single digit cash on cash returns, or maybe we're not getting any cash on cash returns, but we're still making our debt service and not getting foreclosed on.
2: As a real estate developer, risk is actually my friend. Like as long as I can identify that risk and go into the deal eyes wide open, if I buy a brownfield site and it's reflected in the purchase price and others are scared of that risk and I know how to mitigate that, that'll yield, you know, a nice profit at the end. But the, the unknown unknown, to me, is always that thing that's lurking that can pop out from around the corner that you never even expected to trip you or blow you up, and it's March 17th today. And that thing is coronavirus right now, and that's real. I mean, for, from things that I'm seeing in the real world right now, reports from realtors of deals collapsing, just buyers walking away, won't go to PNS. Um, tremendous uncertainty. No uh, smoke certs at the end of a job. The fire department won't come out. No smoke CEOs. Yeah, the the registry of deeds is closing. I signed up a civil engineer the other day, and he said to me, um, he's like, I'm really glad to to book this business today, and uh, we had like a little negotiation and then. I, I didn't take advantage of him in any way, but he offered to to drop his number by about 15% just to book it that day. He wanted, needs to keep the guys going. So what I'm getting at is I, I wonder if uh, construction costs, which we know have been escalating rapidly, might drop.
3: I think it depends because if... If you've signed contracts, I don't think Well, it's no, no in, but if,
2: in the future. Oh, in the future. Like, yeah, no one's going to readjust a contract on the books, but...
3: But you but at the, on the flip side, if if all construction is not allowed to happen, and then all of a sudden they turn the switch back on, you would say that it's just going to be back to back to business as usual, right? You're not going to be able to get
0: in. Or maybe discounts.
1: higher demand.
3: Or
0: higher demand. At that demand. point, if there's a
1: backup of demand, I don't know.
0: It's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. And um, as, as Mark said, you know, today is the 17th, and there's a lot of things happening. Matt, you've mentioned a few things that uh, are potentially passing. So by the time we post this, which will be couple of weeks out, we'll be into April. Who knows? We had an episode last week. We haven't published that one quite yet, but Mark, uh, I wonder if our predictions there are going to change Everything was at all. kind of starting <laughs> to ramp up last week. Yeah.
2: So I said last week that I think that investors will flee to secure to, for security and they'll find that in real estate and they'll find that in specific cities. And what I had heard was, and, and what I believe, uh, Paris, Boston, and San Francisco, uh, or LA rather, as three places that might see an influx of investment as just like a, a place to store a dollar.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: I mean, we spoke to I we spoke to someone, or we were texting back and forth with someone earlier, and they said they went to a couple open houses over the past weekend, and they were pretty busy.
2: They, they were, which is interesting. But then again, I, I get concerned that lenders may not lend. Well, exactly. So I called for a loan on a new construction project yesterday, and the interest rate I was quoted was like, I thought fairly high relative to what I've seen. And I said the Fed just dropped rates to zero. Why is my construction? I mean, also, so they're quoting me at five percent construction interest, which is the same rate as I've seen, yeah. frankly, for about eighteen months. And I thought yeah. that I was be entitled to a great rate. I but think he, you
0: were just getting good rates all along.
2: Yeah, I don't know.
1: I, I, I think yeah. I think what's happened, and I'm not a mortgage guy at all, but I think that they feel that the the risk profile has gone up for them a bit more. So Been that's gone. why they're going to keep keep you at that interest rate. That's what he told because me. Because while yeah, they're getting a, they're getting a better spread for themselves. But
3: I'm in the process of refinancing my personal residence, and my mortgage broker on the phone earlier today said thirty year fixed went up a quarter point
2: last week. He was also looking for twenty five percent. We're talking debt debt to equity. He was telling me that the bank might want to see twenty five percent instead of twenty, which is more typical for my loans. And uh, yeah, another mm-hmm. indication. I think they're concerned that maybe buyers won't be buying because lenders won't be lending uh, and that'll trickle back to us and they'll they will be left with this asset when we're done with construction.
1: Yeah, I mean what how long is your construction period? What Are you thinking a year from now it'll be up back on the market?
2: Yeah, this would be 18 months from now.
1: 18 months. Okay, yeah. So I mean, who knows where we're going to be 18 months from now. Hopefully this thing is way behind us and everything's recovered, but you know, a lot of people are saying that they think this is just the catalyst for a long overdue recession and so How long does that recession last? And, you know, you get done, but we're still in a recession. I
0: don't
2: know. Oil
1: crisis. Hopefully that doesn't happen.
0: I think it's just a negative feedback loop. I believe that sometimes it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everybody has been saying we're overdue for a recession. So even though we may not necessarily be, because at least here locally, the economy is really strong. And nationally, the economy is really strong. Um, But you know what? we're going to find out more and there's obviously going to be some pain. We don't know what the pain is going to be or how long or who it's going to affect. It's going to be something we've never, se- we've never seen. I was talking to my grandmother. She's never seen anything shut down like this. Even, you know, I said, well, what about like world war two? Well, in world war two, they fired up the factories and we started making guns and bullets. So, you know, they put people to work. So I can't say that she was alive for the uh, 1918 Spanish flu though. So, <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: so let's get back to syndication. So, now that we're through the corona, Ooh, yeah.
2: this is the corona be, talk. I, th-
0: I think this might be a, a hot topic for the next couple pods. Uh, it's just going to be interesting so to talk So, maybe
2: about we can it. start. Do you want to… This is like my diary. I'm going to listen back to this and be like, this is what I thought on this date. This is what actually happened.
3: Dear right. Diary, right. Yes. Uh, Mark got a back one oh,
2: okay. Um So no, my my all, all the the studio that I get my facials done and stuff closed. So what are you going to do? I don't, I don't know. Self care. I can't go to turns. I can't go to spin class.
3: Time to get a pedal Peloton. I know. I heard Peloton sales are through the roof because no one wants to go to the oh, gym. I bet. Um. So I bet. okay. Moving on. <laughs> do we want to do we want to walk through maybe the life cycle, uh, a life cycle of a syndication deal? And kind of just go over it at a high level, just so our listeners can kind of get an idea of what the process is like. So at the begin, so let's start at the beginning. I mean, how how you identify a property? Well, you but how do you identify a property? Yeah, you're in Boston, it's in Kansas. So you know, are you flying out every weekend to look at these properties? How do you have boots on the ground in these locations? Um, Are you looking on the local MLS or the local loop now? how, How are you identifying and finding the properties?
1: Great question. Yeah, I'll walk you through um, and feel free to jump in and interrupt and ask me a question as I, as I go through. But basically, the way that I do it is um, I identify a market that I'm interested in. And personally, the way that I've done that is by picking cities or places that I've been to or that I have friends or relatives in. Okay, that's the way I've started it. And then I'll look at that market and then say, all right, does this market have the fundamentals of, of what I think would make a good market? So there's been times when I've looked at a market and said, oh, I've got a friend in San Francisco, but I look at the market, I look at the fundamentals, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's gonna make sense. In the case of Kansas City, I had spent a summer out in Kansas City like 15, 20 years ago, had a great time, thought I was gonna hate it, thought I was be among all, you know, I just was naive, I thought I was gonna be among just, It was a cornfield, and it was actually a very metropolitan city, and I had a blast there that summer. And I had a good friend who ended up moving to Kansas City about four or five years ago. I started looking up, looking into the city, looking into the fundamentals, and found that it's actually a really good, there's a really good, nice, steady economy there. Um, You've got nice, good rent growth, population growth, employment, diversity of different types of employers there. Overall, a good market. And, you know, once in a, once a year or so, Forbes will do a thing or, you know, this magazine or that magazine will do a thing like the the top 20 or the top 30 cities, you know, and, and Kansas City is usually appearing in those. It's usually like number 28 or 29. It's not at the top, but it's, it's usually in a, it usually gets marked as a decent, you know, a decent city where there's decent growth. And for me in this kind of market, you know, I've been looking at places like Dallas-Fort Worth. And, and I have investments in Dallas-Fort Worth. I have investments in Orlando, Florida, which is where I'm from, where I've been looking for, for years to find things. But those two markets are just, they're like at the top, right? They're some of the top locations, especially for the, the type of investments that I do. So I'm looking for B and C class properties that have a value add opportunity on top of them, right? So not, not the new construction, not the class A, which I invest in, which are awesome um, things to invest in, but the type of things that I do are are, are a little bit different.
3: So, are you are you looking for C class properties to ultimately make them B and and potentially buy a D to make it a C, or are you just buying B's and C's and that's it? Because once you do value add, they kind of they 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 usually increase in value when they move up to the next tier right appreciation
1: they do they do so that is one of the that is a component in what we're looking to do so we do reposition the properties i don't think it's necessarily the level that you're talking about to go from a c to a b that can be a large lift and it just sort of depends and it depends on the location itself too you're not going to have a b class property in a d class neighborhood right so it just sort of depends but we are looking to do that value add and to Force appreciation you know what what I'm looking for is I'm looking for an apartment building in a, a decent area that has that population growth or that employment growth the employment growth will, f- will fuel the population growth and I'm looking for a property that's um, below where the rents are below market so let's say market rents in the area are eight hundred dollars a month uh, you know if I can find a place that's charging seven to seven twenty a month for their units, that might be a good candidate for me. And what's usually going to happen when I find that property is the pool, if there's a pool, the pool needs to get completely redone. You know, the roofs are really bad, need to be all replaced. And the property was built in the 1960s and there have been no interior renovations ever since we got to replace. I The, the last property I just did, we had to replace a, a large amount of the um, circuit breakers, the electric boxes, because um, they were the, those stablock ones that spontaneously combust, they were a fire hazard. Yeah, so we had to replace all of those. So I'm looking for properties that have sort of been neglected, have not been taken care of, so that we can go ahead and do that renovation to the amenity package, to the exteriors, go inside, do interior renovations. And I'm not talking about granite countertops, but we'll refinish the countertops. It will go from a mix-matched, you know, white and beige, you know, old appliances and put in new appliances, maybe all black, maybe stainless appliances, fresh paint, going from like a usually a lot of these are like a beige off-white colored wall. and We do like a nice light gray, two-tone, right? We do white trim. So you're looking at anywhere from let's say three thousand to six thousand dollars per unit on those interior renovations. And so we go ahead, we make those renovations. And then we bring the rents up to the market. So we bring that $7.20 a month up to the country, which is where everybody else is. We're not looking to be a leader in the market. But through doing that and tightening up the operations, we're increasing our NOI, right? So just for anybody who's listening, I know you guys know this, but anyone's listening who doesn't understand, NOI is, is your net operating income, right? So you have all your income from your rental and maybe from your laundry, whatever different sort of income streams that you have. And then you subtract your expenses from that. That's your net operating income. And the way that the multifamily properties are valued or any commercial properties are valued, it's that NOI divided by the capital. So if we can increase NOI by either raising rents or lowering expenses or hopefully doing both, we're going to force appreciation on that asset. And that's what we're looking to do.
3: It, it blows my mind the costs to renovate some of these units in some of these area, other areas of the country. Like... Three thousand. You you'd be lucky to get the place painted for six grand here. Like it's it's crazy. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. Agree. Well,
1: and that's why I'm willing to hop on an airplane. Not not today. But (laughs) but in most cases, to go ahead and do that, you know, there's a there's a a famous podcast with this guy who always says, you know, live where you want to live, but invest where the numbers make sense. And and for me, at least right now, much to my chagrin, because I would love to invest in my backyard. The numbers don't make sense here in Boston, but they do in in other places in the country.
3: So how often are you jumping on a plane and going and looking at property?
1: Yeah, well, so to get back into sort of the story of how I got into the Kansas City market, so I started going out there visiting um, and making relationships with brokers and property managers. And that process is not something that happened overnight. You know, that that process took several years uh, of me going out there. And so initially I would go out there about once a quarter or so, to look at properties, to meet with property managers and brokers and do some property tours. If there was, I would wait until there was something that looked very promising. At this point now, I've got enough relationships out there where I don't need to fly out there until we know. I, I know that I'm very close on getting a deal and then I'll fly out for a property tour. But what usually happens is I am usually end up being out there for some other reason. I've got at this point, um, 256 units in Kansas, in the Kansas City, or the I should say the Grand Greater Kansas City area, because I have some properties in in Lawrence, which is about 45 minutes away. That I'm usually out there for one reason or another. I'd say every other month. Um, in some cases, it's every month, and usually I can squeeze property tours for new acquisitions. Kind of. In that, you know, there's, like I said, there's, there's more economies of scale. I'll be out there for one reason, but I can visit all the properties in in any particular visit. Cool. And so the way that I find the properties is, you know, through those relationships that I have, people know that who I am and what I'm looking for in the area. And, and they, they send me properties, but it's just, it took a long while to, to get there.
0: Speaking of the first one. So how did, how did you get comfortable actually doing that first deal? Because Dan and I have looked at a few places We've always talked about potentially investing out of state. We know a few other folks in our area who have invested out of state as well, but it's it's almost like it's really outside the comfort zone. And I know they say, you know, if you're not going outside your comfort zone, you're not growing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where the numbers are going to be better. But how did you get comfortable
1: on your first deal? Yeah, I think investing out of state is something that's, that's uh, very, it's nerve wracking. I have a meetup that I run here in Boston. And, uh, one of the most popular topics that we do, we do about once a year is I, I pull together an out of state investing panel and I, and I pulled three investors that I know and I always do different ones every year, um, to come up on stage and I asked them a series of questions and then we open it up to the audience. You know, for me, my first, my first real estate investment was an out of state investment. And the reason why was because I was uh, living in New York city at the time and I bought some property and it was going to be like a country house for me up in, in Connecticut, Northwest Connecticut. And then I ended up, it ended up becoming a rental. It's a a whole other story on its own, but that made me have some comfort level with being, you know, it was a good two hour drive away from where I was. And so I had to have a certain comfort level. And the way that I was able to do that was by building a team. And so I think the most important thing, um, especially when you're looking at, you know, you're, you're purchasing a, a ten to twenty million dollar uh, investment property, you know, several hundreds of units. You've got to create a team and a team that you trust, right? So we have, you know, local property management company, a third-party property management company that we hire, that is there. And then we have, because of the scale of these properties, you know, usually a hundred units or more, we're able to have onsite staff, right? So I have a maintenance team, I have a a property manager uh, on site. And sometimes we have you know, additional staff as well, just depending on, on the size of the property. One of the ways I got even more comfortable not just being two hours away from my investment property, but being even further away was some single family homes that I purchased in, in Nashville. And that were all run by the property management company. And those did really well. And then I started investing passively in these syndications. And that gave me a comfort level in actually investing in you know, 100, 200 unit properties Clear across the country from me that were were being you know managed professionally, but 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 by a completely different team. So it wasn't it it, it wasn't the kind of thing where it was like okay, here's my first deal and I, I'm gonna go for it. You know, buy 132 units. For me, there was a certain comfort level investing out of state. On smaller single family properties, then doing some passive investments. And then, yeah, the first large syndication that I did was a 132 unit, $10 million deal. But at that point, I'd already invested passively in like six or seven units, uh, six, sorry, six or seven large scale syndications, and had done a bunch of single family and some flips. And I had a, a comfort level, but it was kind of like baby steps to a certain extent at the beginning.
3: So you've identified the property when you're putting these units well, these bi- these complexes I guess under agreement you know how are you structuring your offer yeah, so what's your due diligence are are what how long is your due diligence period how long is tip- your typical from you know pns to close what are those you know specifically what are those details i guess
2: all cash yeah, sure. no contingencies close tomorrow yeah
1: yeah, those would be awesome. Buy one I'd in Boston. That's one. What... That <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, fortunately, depending on the market that you're in, you know, there's different sort of competitiveness. For instance, in in Orlando or Dallas Fort Worth, yeah, you're going to have to be putting down, you know, a certain amount of hard money on day one, right? Even before due diligence, or you're just not going to win the deal because there's a lot of people doing that. The types of deals that I'm usually getting involved in. We usually don't have any money going hard until after due diligence, usually. Usually at this point in the market cycle, we have money going hard after due diligence. We may have additional going hard later, but it usually, you know, look, sometimes you could be lucky and you get a deal where you don't have to, where you even get a financing contingency. So all your money's not hard until after the financing. But those I, I'm finding are extremely rare nowadays. What I'm usually seeing in the market is you know 30 days of due diligence in some cases you may be more aggressive and do 21 days but i'm usually seeing about 30 days of due diligence and then i'm usually seeing another 30 to 45 days after the close it's really hard to close on these deals in 60 days which which the 30 and 30 would give you it's just hard for the lender to get their act together i did do that on my most recent deal with a lender that I've worked with many times before and they had everything going. And I actually even um, started the loan applications and everything before we had signed the purchase and sale agreement. Cause I I was pretty confident we were gonna sign that purchase and sale agreement. And I if I hadn't done that, we wouldn't have been able to make the deadline. So I think you really need 75 days to do a deal nowadays, uh, just because of the way the banks are. and. And and coming out of this, you know, with the, the Fed producing the rates and everything, from what I've heard anecdotally, I do mainly agency debt. So I'm doing Fannie and Freddie debt, right? So like non-recourse, usually 10 to 12-year term. They're just inundated with applications right now. So the, the, if you were to do a deal right now, you might need to give yourself some more time.
2: Is there like a cost per door that um, you keep in your head for for these deals? Is there a range? even between Kansas City and Dallas-Fort Worth that you like to see?
1: Not really. And the reason why I say that is it's really going to depend on the particular market. A lot of people will ask me, is there a particular cap rate that you're looking for? And again, my answer is not really. It's really about, okay, where's that value add and what can I do on top of that? And what's the price per door? And sort of what's my return on investment from that perspective Now I will say that most of the things that I'm tending to invest in are anywhere from 50 to 100k a door. I'm not usually if we're getting up towards the like 100k a door, it's probably not going to be the right. uh, There's probably not enough meat on the bone for me to get involved in those particular areas for that kind of asset class. I mean, look, you can buy something for 300,000 a door in Kansas City. There's there are really nice properties, but. The kind of things I'm looking for um, are usually between 50 to 100 a door.
0: Is it more of like a price to rent ratio that you look at?
1: No, I don't look at that either. I mean, you can do that sort of like back of the napkin. But all of those, those ways of looking at it, I think, are based on if you're just looking at the yield. For me, it's really about, okay, what's the value add here? How much is it going to cost us per door to do the value add? And what are our achievable rents going to be? And sometimes you can have a huge arbitrage. I have a property where we're getting $225 a month more in rent, which is huge when you're talking about rents that are around $1,000 a month to go from $1,000 to $1,225 to is, is massive. And then you you know divide that by the cap rate, and you've got a huge, huge value add. Huge. But sometimes you can do that on just a $50 a door bump. It just depends. Uh, There are just so many factors that I feel like I I need to put it all into the spreadsheet and sort of see, see where things shake out. So
3: going back to that spreadsheet, so your underwriting process, how long does it typically take? You know, when if someone brings you a deal, do you have a quick sniff test that you do? Because, you know, when we, when we have a project brought to us, you know, we kind of know, there are a bunch of knowns already for us. We know how much per square foot our construction costs are. We more or less know what our sellouts are going to be average price per square foot. So, you know, we can pretty much do a, a quick and dirty, you know, high level back of the napkin due diligence to see if a deal passes a sniff test in, you know, 15 minutes. But, you know, when you're when you're brought a 500 unit complex, is there something that you quickly do to kind of just yay or nay?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can usually analyze a property in 30 minutes to an hour, depending on the complexity. You know, a lot of the things I can just look at it, right, you know, and just read a couple of the deal points right away and know if if it's going to work or not you know, maybe it's too big, maybe it's too small. Maybe it's, you know, if if I get a thing and it's like, oh, class B property with $2 million, you know, it's a hundred unit property with $2 million of, of you know, owner improvements, I'm not even looking at it because I know they've already done all the value add, right? So, but, you know, something that comes in that looks like it might work, I can throw it into my spreadsheet. And yeah, I mean, there's certain assumptions I'll make. I'll put in, you know, what, what I believe the interest rates to be right right about now, I'll put in like 2 years let's say of interest only I'll take a look at the pro forma rents that the that the realtors put in which are usually going to be higher than than I would feel comfortable with but I'll I'll pop those in um I'll estimate $3,000 a unit for rehab costs and just put it down on paper and and sort of see where it's penciling out and see if we're if we're in the ballpark or not and then at that point and I know what my expenses are right so a lot of it's going to be sort of your expenses You know, on on a yearly basis, what's electric? What's water? What's you know repairs and maintenance? What's your marketing budget? What's your advertising? uh, What's your administration budget? uh, What do taxes look like? What does insurance look like? Being that I have a lot of properties in those areas, I know like okay, it should be around two hundred dollars a door for contract services, or it should be around six hundred dollars a door for repair and maintenance for the year. I mean, those are all ballparks that I can use when I'm first looking at a deal and say, okay, this looks like it's probably gonna pencil out. And then I could spend hours upon hours sharpening the pencil, talking with my local property management company, working with the insurance guy to get an actual quote, talking with my tax consultant to understand what's going on. You know, certain counties I know really well now, I don't even need to talk to him. But if it's a new county and I don't know how those taxes work there, I talk with him to find out what are the what are the assessments look like there and you know that that whole kind of thing. And to really sharpen the pen- pencil and hone down on exactly where I think everything's going to come
2: out. So we're coming up on time for, for part one here, but uh, we'll get back together next week and we'll dive into the weeds a little bit more about things like how the financing is structured on these deals, how you attract investors, maybe in a little more detail on tax treatment of uh, syndication deals, because there's certainly a lot to talk about. But uh, we'll wrap it up today with a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. And uh, Dan, you want to kick it off?
3: Yeah, I'll kick it off. So, uh, in-ground pools, as they relate to
2: large complexes,
1: overrated <laughs> liability.
2: Is it? Is it because it's expensive oh, from oh, a liability yeah, oh, standpoint? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yeah, and just they, they can they can just be problematic uh, in general.
2: <laughs> so, a lot of
0: maintenance,
2: right? Crowdfunding.
1: Oh, probably appropriately rated.
2: Okay, in-unit laundry.
1: Oh. Appropriately rated, really important, really great, can be, can be a huge NOI booster. We do, we do that a lot. Fannie Mae. Appropriately rated. I think it's got a really good uh, reputation. I almost exclusively use Fannie Mae debt. All
0: right. The last one, I was trying to find uh, the term. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong on the term, but basically uh, utility chargebacks, like master utility agreements.
1: Yeah. So a lot of times they call that RUBS, like the RUBS system, which, which I think stands for reimbursement from utilities or something like that. I think it's a reimbursement utility billback system is what I think it stands for. Those are great, I think appropriately rated, but you can have a, a huge, uh, an, again, a huge NOI boost than that. A lot of times we're seeing properties that were not individually metered, but maybe operated by a, a a mom and a pop kind of, you know, owner operated kind of situation where they weren't billing back for that. But if you look at the market, the market is billing back for that. And you can have a, a huge increase in your other income category, which can be a, a huge boost.
2: Hey, that's all I got. That was fun. Matt, yeah. thank you so much for uh, joining us. We're excited to get back together next week. Great. And uh, maybe we'll be in
3: person, maybe we won't.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We won't because my kids are still going to be. Uh, <laughs> so
3: we won't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Cool. Well, listen, thanks for the call and uh, we'll just keep coordinate on email to figure out a, for a date sure. time.
2: Thank you again. We really appreciate it. Matt, if folks want to find you or your, your company, where can they do that?
1: Oh, on my website, mjppg.com. Or you can email me, Matt, M-A-T-T, at MJPPG.com.
3: And what's the name of your
1: meetup? Oh, it's the Multifamily Investors Network of Massachusetts. If you go to my website, uh, you can fill out for my newsletter and you'll you'll get information on when we have the next meetup.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Matt. And thanks, everybody, for listening, for rating and reviewing. Appreciate you.
1: Be safe out there. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers. Yep.